Hello, Watermark. Hey, Dallas, those streaming online, Plano, Fort Worth, and Frisco. Welcome. Come on. Welcome, Frisco, to the team. My boy Connor is out there leading with some other friends, and God is doing an incredible work. How crazy is it? how he adds to our number daily, those being saved, not just in the way of people, but campuses. It is an incredible work. If we haven't met, my name is JP or Jonathan Pecluda, and it is a privilege to travel through the scriptures with you today. And so we're in this series, Philippians, we're moving through the book. And I want you to know up front that there are two kinds of people. All right, there's two kinds of people. Even here, there's two kinds of people. There are cat people, and there are dog people, all right? Okay, so how many of you are dog people? Raise your hand if you're dog people. Okay, good, there's some dog people, good. How many of you are cat people? Raise your hand. Okay, if you're, if you're a cat person, what we'd love for you to do is just go ahead and exit through the roads. We have a bus to take, you, uh, to take you over to the village, and so we're gonna do that uh, with you today, all right? No, there are two kinds of people indeed, two kinds of people. There are in and out burger people, and there are Whataburger people, all right? <laughs> Texas forever Whataburger people. That's right. In and out people? Hey, but California, that's where you should go, all right? All right? Okay, so listen, there are two kinds of people. There are two kinds of people, and it all comes down to how you pronounce this word right there. How do you pronounce that word on three? One, two, three. Good, it's clear now. Um, Okay, and so here's the deal. I know some of you are like, but the acronym and the word starts with a G. But the inventor of the word says that, or the acronym says that it is indeed pronounced JIF, like the peanut butter. It's solved now. It's JIF with like a J sound, all right? And so there are indeed two kinds of people here today. There are those of you who set your alarm and you get up when it rings and then there are those of you who set multiple alarms for some reason, all right? Every five minutes, every 15 minutes, every two minutes. Hey, why do you do that? Stop that. Okay, my, my, when you see my wife today, would you just intervene on that deal? Because I don't understand why I have to wake up at five because she wants to get up at six and set the alarm every five minutes. I just don't, I just don't get it. It's, it anyways. Okay, I'm sorry. So there are indeed two kinds of people. There are those of you that dip your French fries in the ketchup. And then there are those of you that put ketchup all over the French fry. I don't understand. Why, why do you do that? Okay? I don't. You must be cat people or something. Okay? <laughs> I, I don't understand. And there are indeed two kinds of people. All right? There are those of you that go zero inbox. Those little bubbles drive you crazy. You got to clear them right away. And then there are those of you with 3,596 emails, yeah. You people, that's me people, all right? I was actually talking with my friend David this week, and so there's mine, yeah. 32,894. So if I haven't emailed you back, I'm, I'm gonna get to it, all right, I, I promise. And so all of those are kind of fun, those don't matter. But there are indeed two kinds of people, and, and I think this one matters. I think this one is, is a little bit more important than their, the other ones. There are those of you that see the glass, I'm gonna put a little bit more in there. There are those of you that see the glass is half full, and there are those of you that see the glass 
is half empty. What does it matter? Who cares? Just a little pessimistic, a little negative, a little cynical. It's kind of my wiring. It's who I am. Does it really matter? I want to argue with you from the scriptures that I believe it does. That there is something about understanding the resurrected Jesus Christ that labels our lives with optimism, a hopeful outlook, believing the best about the future because we know the end game. And so as we move through this series in Philippians, I want to talk about gospel-driven optimism. And here's the deal. Optimism feels like a neutered term. It feels like who cares? Like what does that really matter? Think happy thoughts or good vibes. You know, what is what is it really? Optimism and the gospel? Is that really important? I, I, I think it is. I think it's more than just a personality type. And I know if you may be skeptical right now, if you are bent towards cynicism, you may be thinking, what, is he coming at me with some self-help today? No. No, this isn't just self-help. I think it really matters. In fact, optimism is defined like this, hopefulness and confidence about the future. Well, when you put it like that, hopefulness and confidence about the future, that's a basic, fundamental belief of Christianity. Hopefulness, right? Believing the best about the future, confidence in what God is doing. And when you are optimistic in the midst of obstacles, you can appear foolish. The world might be tempted to think you're naive or even ignorant. And in fact, in a day of skepticism, so much negativity, more than I I ever seen in my lifetime, I've heard, I've read, more than has ever been. You, You turn on the news, it's tragedy after tragedy, shooting after shooting, bombs after bombs, pointless racism. So easy to drift towards the negative. In fact, to be positive, to be optimistic in this fallen, broken world. It takes work. It can feel like you're swimming upstream. It can feel like you're going against the current because everybody at the water cooler wants to have a negative conversation. And if you're into that, man, instant friends. They'll pull you right in. In fact, they'll suck you in. They will pull you down. They will take you the way of the current, of our culture. And when are we the most tempted toward a critical spirit? Well, it's when we feel like God has let us down. Right? Something happens here. Something's been happening here. A long season of hurting. What are you doing? What are you doing up there? I don't understand. You're supposed to be good. Supposed to be a good God. And we feel tempted to despair. Almost entitled to some negativity. I think we can learn from our brother Paul today, from the Apostle Paul, from the scriptures. I'm in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. That's where we're going to be today. And I know that if you're here and you're a cynic, I know, you know, if you're a skeptic or a pessimist, you think, no, I'm just a realist. I get it, right? They, oh, I'm just a realist. 
No, you're not. No, you're not. You, you see the glass as half empty. And you have a choice. You can change your lens by what you see it with. And, and I know you're still skeptical that that matters, but I want to show you that I think it does, okay? And so last week, Todd was in uh, verses 9 through 12. He read the Apostle Paul's prayer for the Philippians, and he talked about how godliness doesn't come with anything instant. There's no fast track to godliness. We discipline ourselves for godliness. It comes with long obedience in the same direction. As we move into verses 12 through 20, I want to show you how optimism inspires others, how optimism sees opportunity, and how optimism always overcomes, talking about gospel-driven optimism. Let me remind you as we set this up, Paul planted this church. He loved these people. The theme of Philippians is, is love and joy. You see rejoice a lot. All right, he really cares about these people. Wrote this about 62 AD. He's in prison in Rome, most likely chained to a soldier, 24 hours a day, chained to a Roman soldier, and he's penning this letter that he sends to the Philippians that later makes it into our Christian Bible. We read it and are inspired by it and learn from it today. He's just prayed for them. And then he says in verse 12, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, what you could do if you have your Bible and a pen, just underline the statements of optimism, just so you know I didn't make this subject up out of nowhere. See if you agree that it's in here. Brothers and sisters, what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains. The reason that I'm in chains is Christ. I'm in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident because of my chains. Brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. And so he looks at his situation He's in chains, he's in prison, he's chained to a guard. And he says, hey, it's okay, guys, because this accomplishes my end goal. What is my life mission? It is to advance the gospel, and even me being here can advance the gospel, so I'm content because what I want most in this world is happening. And then he says this, this really convicting idea that, hey, if they're talking about me, they're talking about Jesus, because Paul's life was so intertwined with Jesus Christ, that to talk about Paul was to talk about Jesus. Now think about your life. If someone's talking about you, are they talking about Christ? He's like, hey, if they're gonna talk about me, then that means they get to talk about the one who saved me, my savior, and I'm okay with that. That makes it all worth it. And then something happens, he says, and the church is being strengthened in the midst of this adversity. The church is being strengthened, why? Fear's such a powerful motivator, right? If you're afraid to do something, you get frozen in fear, you think, I don't want to do that. Well, they're afraid to share the gospel because if you share the gospel, we're going to throw you in prison. And Paul's like, no, I'm in prison. And it's, it's not, it, it, God still uses it. It's like this. You ever, um, anybody ever been bluff jumping, cliff jumping? Come on, anybody? I'm the only one? I mean, okay, good, because I was like feeling judgment. Like, Why would you do that? You know, jump off a cliff. Um, and so, you know, maybe you've been to Lake Whitney or Possum Kingdom. There's cliffs and lake. And, 
and, and you get up there and you're with all your friends, just imagine you're with all your friends, you're up there, you're like, whoa, man, it's much higher up here than it was down, wow, okay, gosh, is that, how deep is it, wow, is there any rocks down there, I don't know, can't see under the water, I don't know if I'm gonna do this, and then you've got that friend, because everybody has that friend that's like, woo, just runs and jumps off, double, double gainer, you know, in the water, dive, no splash, and then you're like, oh, where'd he go, where'd he go, where is he, is he coming up, is he coming up, is he coming? and you're still heart racing, I don't wanna do this, and then he comes up in the water, big smile on his face. Woo, it was awesome. And then another friend jumps off. And you're still kind of scared. And then another friend jumps off. And they come up with a smile. And they come up with a smile. Like, oh, it's awesome. And all of a sudden, the fear turns to FOMO. <laughs> you're like, man, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm miss. I got to do it. You know, they're fine. They're fine. Let's go. Right? It's that thing that you were afraid of when you see someone else endures it, all of a sudden you're strengthened. And that's what's going on here. They see the Apostle Paul enduring the thing that they're afraid of and they're strengthened. If he shares, then I'm gonna share. Let's go. So the church was strengthened how? Through Paul's optimism. Gospel-driven optimism. My first point, optimism inspires others. Optimism inspires others. This is leadership 101, right? If you are leading others, if, if you are leading an organization, if someone is looking to you for leadership, you need to know that optimism inspires others. In fact, there's an article put out by the Harvard Business Review called Primal, Primal Leadership. And I'm just gonna read to you some quotes from this article. This comes from two years of research. Two years of research concluded that the leader's mood and behaviors drive the moods and behaviors of everyone else. A leader needs to make sure that not only he or she regularly is in an optimistic, authentic, high-energy mood, but also that through their chosen actions, their followers feel and act that way too. And then this last line, listen. Emotional leadership is the spark that ignites a company's performance, creating a bonfire of success or a landscape of ashes. Mood matters that much. But I didn't just bring you here today to help you be better leaders. Think about your home for a minute. I, I get home from work. It's been a long day. Usually I go straight from, you know, my truck to the dinner table. And I'm tired. And you know what I feel like? I feel entitled to check out. They're talking about their, oh, and this, that, and you wouldn't believe the so-and-so, and that, I made this on my test. I'm just, oh, okay, really, that's good, okay. You know, and, and you, you know, if the dad of the home isn't in it, if you feel, hey, it's okay, right? I, I'm, I deserve a little rest. I need a break in between. And it impacts the mood of everybody else. Maybe you've seen the sign, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, Right? Right? Got some elbows on that one. Well, let's see. Uh, think about how we're leading our home. You, you can remember growing up, you're sitting at the kitchen table, your parents are fighting outside, you're sitting there wondering if they're gonna make it. Tears start streaming down your face. You don't realize where this is going. You can remember the stressful times, the angst and anxiety that that creates. Or maybe it's a road trip, right? And dad's glued to the windshield. It's pouring down rain. The windshield wipers are doing this. And you're just sitting back. He's like, everybody be quiet. And That's what I do, you know. And it affects the whole family. But it's not even just about 
your family. See, Paul's optimism serves a purpose of his life mission, his life goals, if you will, to move the gospel forward. And as he's optimistic, the gospel, others are tempted, willing to, driven to move the gospel forward. Can I let you in on a secret just between me and you? And you Plano, and you Fort Worth, and you Frisco, keep that just between us. Um, This is the secret, I believe, my personal opinion. This is the secret of one Todd Wagner. This idea right here. Like this is what he does. Like he's constantly thinking that, hey, it's all gonna work out. I've heard him say it countless times, right? It's all gonna work out. It's all gonna work out, and the, and the staff is strengthened to move forward and share the God. I could share with you a dozen stories. The, the first one that comes to mind is we were, you know, before staff retreat, he'll bring in a speaker to address the staff. It's a big deal. It happens once a year. And this particular year, he had invited Bodie Bauckham to come and address our staff. Bodie was flying in from, from Africa and so our whole staff gathered right before we go on a retreat for a couple days, and this is what starts the retreat. We all come in a room, we're waiting for Vody. we're excited to find out who the speaker is this year, and, and Todd walks in and says, hey, he didn't make it, his, his flight never left. And it's gonna be awesome. And he, said, you know, he says this line, he goes, the Lord knows about the ships. I'm like, I don't even know what that means, but I feel inspired. I'm like, okay, God knows about the ships, you know, and, and, and he goes, I don't think, I think God didn't bring Vody here this morning because God wanted you to meet with Jesus. And he said, everybody get their Bible, spread out throughout the campus, and who's going to speak to you this morning is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Spend some time in his word. And we did, and what happened afterwards is one person after the other on our staff said, man, that was the most powerful moment before staff retreat we've had. And it was this negative situation that became positive because Todd's looking for opportunity. What does God want to do through it? In the midst of tragedy, his number one response all the time, and, and, and I don't mean this in a trite, cliche kind of way, he just believes in an awesome God. So he says, hey, when the wheels fall off, he's like, this is going to be awesome. Because God is at work. He's still driving, he's still in control, he's still doing something. I know that he wins, I've read the back of the book. And what it does for me personally is it makes me wanna proclaim the gospel without fear. Why? Because he jumped off and he came up and he fist pumped and said, it's awesome. Okay, right about now, you had a mix of emotions, some of you. I see it on your face. What about, but can I not be sad? Yeah, you can be sad. Remember the shortest verse in all of the Bible? Lazarus just died, and it simply says, Jesus wept. The one who's gonna raise him from the dead took a moment to grieve with those who grieve because he saw a sin and death in the world that never should have been. It wasn't his first desire. So can you be sad? Sure, you can be sad. Just don't stay there. 
because you know how it ends. You know what's waiting for you. You know where this is going. You know where this leads. Gospel-driven optimism inspires others to share the gospel fearlessly. Some of you, you want your kids to share the gospel. You want your kids to be more fearless. Can I tell you how? You, you wanna do that. Here's 101. Here's how you get them. You jump off the cliff. You come up with a smile. You share the gospel. You lead out and you show them that it's gonna, always gonna be okay. Even if someone responds poorly and they see, hey, you're okay. Life's gonna go, I'm all right. Dive back in, verse 15. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill, underline, but others out of goodwill, the latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. So he's saying, hey, there's two kinds of people. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. Okay, it sounds like he's going negative a little bit right here. If I'm reading this, like, okay, no, this, he turned negative. And then verse 18, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I am sad. Nope. Because of this, I rejoice. I have joy. He says there's two kinds of people. One preached the gospel for good reasons. One preached the gospel for bad reasons. How does someone preach the gospel out of selfish ambition? What does that mean? We always think the prosperity theology, preaching to get, uh, that, that applies here, I believe. But most likely what's going on is the leader of the church, the way, is now put in prison and people see opportunity. And so there's some people, so some people are like, okay, we gotta preach so that the gospel would go on. And some people are like, hey, I'm gonna preach so that people would look at me. Let's just say hypothetically, right? Uh, let's say Todd goes away, all right? And there's me and um, Blake Holmes, and Kyle Kegler. And, and Blake and Kyle are like, hey, we need to continue to preach the gospel so that the body is strengthened. And I'm like, Todd's gone, it's my chance. <laughs> it's my time. And I'm like, I need to preach the gospel so that they, you know, they'll think much of me. And therein lies the problem. That, I think that's what's going on here. And he says that some preach it so that to stir up trouble for him, what does that look like? You know, in this day and age, people were entertained by drama. Not anymore, but, it, but then, right? <laughs> and so they're like, they're like, um, you know, they go up to officials and they're like, hey, did you hear, let me ask you a question, did you hear about this Jesus guy? He died and came back to life? Like, that's crazy. And he, he, was, he was telling that he came to save people from their sins. I mean, at least that's what that Paul guy said. I mean, that's what he, you know, the guy that you locked up, I mean, he told everybody that. And, and they're stirring up trouble for him because they're entertained by the drama. And all the while, Paul is like, hey, God can use this. God's in the midst of this. And so Paul, he, he's not just optimistic, he's opportunistic. My second point, optimism sees opportunity. Optimism sees opportunity. 
He says, hey, I'm gonna make the most of every opportunity. He told us that in, this, in another letter that he wrote to the church in Colossae from the same prison cell, Colossians chapter four, verse five, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders, make the most of every opportunity. And so we can do that. Even if we disagree with someone around other things, if we believe upon the gospel and we have that in common, we can celebrate that. If they believe that you are saved, by grace through faith alone, in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, if we have that in common, even if there's a lot of other stuff we disagree with, we can come together and celebrate that. In fact, just last week, I was at an event with lots of different churches, some denominational, very charismatic, uh, Bible churches, fellowship churches, community churches, the whole gamut. And the thing that we came together on was the gospel. And, and people online said, well, why would you do that? Why would you share a stage with so-and-so? Why would you get up there? Why do you wanna do this? Let me tell you why. Let me answer now loudly so you know. If someone's gonna give me a stage and a microphone and allow me to preach the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, I'll take it. I'll take it. As Todd has said here so well, I'll lift up the name of Jesus with anyone. Now, I might follow it up with, hey, don't follow Jesus like they did. There, there are some real dangers to some of what's going on there. But, but yes, if we have Christ in common, we can celebrate that and disagree here. Hey, I think that's wrong. I think it matters. Hey, I think that's wrong. I think it matters. But this, yes, you got this. We, let's, let's hold this in common. We can celebrate people getting saved it's interesting because so often the critics, right, the ones that are pointing out, they're not doing anything to advance the gospel. I love how he said it last week. We're not praying that God would only use us. We're under no delusionment that he only uses watermark. I've seen the senior leadership here, the elders and other leaders here meet with churches that we disagree with and lovingly affirm them in some ways and challenge them in other ways and say, hey, we think that really matters. In fact, we think it's destructive and do so in love, even with strong affection. In fact, it's, it's so funny that, uh, or ironic I'll say. I'm an audible learner, I'm an auditory learner. And so when I'm gonna preach a message, what I'll do is I'll listen to you know, five or six other Bible teachers take the same passage. And so I'm listening to a message from a church in Austin. They brought in a communicator from Washington, D.C. He's a guest speaker there at a church in Austin. He's teaching this exact passage, Philippians 1, 12 through 20, and I'm, and I'm kind of listening, I'm reading some commentaries, I'm, I'm studying some words, and I hear something, my ears pop up, and I kind of lean in, I'm like, what did he say? And it was, it was interesting, on this text right here, let me show you what he said, watch this. Secure people who've embraced a God-given purpose, celebrate the advance of Jesus, no matter whose mouth it comes through, right? So just the other day, two, two of the largest, most successful churches in Dallas are Watermark Church and the Village Church. And just a few weeks ago, maybe a few months ago now, Todd Wagner, the pastor of Watermark Church, put a little video out on Twitter called, What I Really Think of the Village Church. Ooh. 
right? So everyone clicks on it, see what he's going to say, right? And he says, let me tell you what I think about the village church. And for about the next five minutes, he just celebrated all that that church was doing to proclaim the name of Jesus and celebrated their people and what they were doing and the influence they were having on his city. And you watch that and you're like, that's, that's awesome. That's awesome. We're home team. We're the same team. And so if I'm chasing him and you're chasing him, you're not a threat. You're a friend. How crazy is that? That there's a pastor from somewhere teaching at a church in Austin, talking about two churches in Dallas, and you just see the unity of the body of Christ working together to advance the gospel, to celebrate the gospel moving forward. And, and I've talked about this before, that the gospel is like, it's like holy jujitsu, right? Jujitsu is, is a martial arts that uses your opponents or the opposition's force against them. This is what the gospel does, is it, is it takes any force that is working against it and it just turns it on it, that force. And so it's like this fire, and when it faces opposition, they think they're going to snuff out the fire, and really they're pouring kerosene on it, and the gospel is just strengthened. And you see that how frustrating must it have been to come against the Apostle Paul. I mean, it had to be mind-blowingly pull out your hair, frustrating. You just think about that, right? Hey, we're going to throw him in jail. Hey, man, prison guards need Jesus too. I'll just convert the whole prison. If you want to, we'll, we'll beat him. We'll beat him. Hey, I rejoice in the sufferings of Jesus Christ, the fellowship with him, okay? Stone him to death, drag him outside the city. Ha <laughs> ha, you didn't kill me, I'm going back to this city, you know, right? Okay, well, we'll, we'll chain him up. Chain him to a prison guard. Cool, man, I'll just write the Bible. All right, put his hands in stocks. I'll just dictate to Timothy, okay, right? Kill him, to die is gain. Let him live, to live is Christ. Ah, you know, it's like, what do we do with this guy? Gospel-driven optimism sees opportunity even in opposition. Even when someone is working against you, there are opportunities to share the gospel. And he goes on to say in verse 18, yes, yes, and I will continue to rejoice, underline, and I will continue to rejoice for I know, underline, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Is that optimism? Will turn out for my deliverance. I know that it will. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. I will not lose hope. Whatever happens. I know how it ends. Can I, I, don't, I don't want you to hear this so many times that you lose that. I know how this ends. Did you, have you stopped knowing how it ends? Like, like you, you know how it ends, but you don't know how it ends. I know how it ends. My third point, optimism always overcomes. Optimism always overcomes. Overcomes what? Overcomes everything. Even death. 
Because failure is often just a matter of when you give up, right? If the, if the game is over and you're down, then you lose. But this game ain't over till he wins. And then it still ain't over. It's just a long victory dance. Like a really, really long victory dance. It's not over. With the gospel, it's not over even when it's over. What, gospel-driven optimism, what does that mean? Like, if you had to say in one word, what is gospel-driven optimism in one word? Isn't it, it's faith, right? Faith. It's the essence of, of what we believe. And he says, hey, here's how my faith is strengthened. The prayers of others, he says, the, the power of Jesus' spirit, the Holy Spirit. And he says, a hope for the future. Even at the end of my life, I have hope for the future, I love this, on Tuesday was gathered with our staff here in Dallas, and I just asked them, hey, what are you most looking forward to when you think about heaven? And when you ask those questions, sometimes you think, well, I'm gonna have to pull answers from them, you know, okay, here's what I mean by that. But I just, I just like got to the end of the question, what are you most looking forward to when you think about heaven? It was like, oh, boom, 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 boom. They're talking over each other, interrupting each other. Let me go, let me share, oh, I got one. And it was, it was I, we had to, I had to cut it off. I was like, hey, guys, we gotta stop. I mean, they were ready. The staff here was ready for that question. They said, you know what, no more shame. No more shame, no more brokenness, no more hurt. One said, no more struggling with sin. Another said, can you imagine what it's gonna be like to be reunited with those relatives? Well, what about the people that we shared the gospel with and we don't know if they were saved and then we see them in heaven saved. Said, yeah, yeah, forget all that. Face to face with Jesus Forever, like worshiping Jesus. Another, understanding the mysteries, those, those confusing things in the scripture, all of a sudden we see clearly now. We, uh, we get it. How we can search God forever, continue to learn about him, even in his kingdom, and on and on and on and on. We get glorified bodies. And on and on they went. And my heart was strength. Courage from an understanding of the gospel. That death is not the end, it is the beginning. We believe the glass is half full because the tomb is empty. You, you hear me? We believe the glass is half full because we know the tomb was fully empty that Christ raised from the dead, that we have hope for eternal life with him, that we can live forever with God because Jesus, because of what he did, because he paid for our sins, that you don't have to suffer for your sins because Christ suffered for your sins on your behalf and you get to be with God forever and ever and ever. So you see the world through that lens that the tomb is empty. And then we think about eternity, we reflect on it. See, this is what Paul did, is he, he remember, he, he talked to the resurrected Lord on the road to Damascus. He had a conversation, a real conversation, a two-way conversation with Jesus. And so he exercised his gifts in accordance with his faith, which was great. C.S. Lewis said this about heaven and 
the Chronicles of Narnia, The Last Battle. The further up and the further in you go, the bigger everything gets. The inside is larger than the outside. And as Aslan spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. We get eternity with God. Don't lose sight of that. Eternity is the great equalizer, right? Do you know, you know what I mean by that? The great equalizer? Every one of you would take this trade. If I came to you and I said, hey, tomorrow is going to be a horrific, tragic, awful day. Things will happen tomorrow that you can't even fathom how terrible they will be. But if you endure tomorrow, the next day and every day after for the rest of your life will be perfect. It will be paradise. It will be pure bliss. Nothing negative. Everyone would say, sign me up. I'll endure tomorrow. Like tomorrow, the unspeakable will happen. But the next day, you will wake up as though waking up from a nightmare. Look back and say, it was all a dream. I'm going to be okay. We would all take that deal. And in the gospel, we've all taken that deal. That your 76 years or 88 years or 104 years on this earth is but a vapor. And then for infinity, for eternity, forever. You are with God. In his kingdom. Where there is no pain or shame. No sadness or death, no sickness or disease. Pure joy and laughter. And we have hope. We see it as half full because the tomb is empty. And so what do I want you to do? I want you to take an eternal perspective. When you are tempted to despair, when you're, you're focused on sadness, when things aren't going the way that you had hoped, I want you to take a giant step back and look into eternity and know that in Christ, it's going to be okay. Better than just okay. It's going to be good. In its purest form, the word good. Beautiful, amazing, incredible. You see your situation in light of eternity. He says it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. We hate it when good things I'm sorry, when bad things happen to good people. If there was ever a good person 
other than Jesus, we would say the greatest missionary of all time is here, he's in prison, bad things are happening to him, and he says, man, I don't lose sight of eternity. Though my body's wasting away, I know what is stored up for me. You shouldn't either. And so in summary, optimism inspires others. Optimism sees opportunity. And optimism always overcomes. When, when good people suffer, we're tempted to despair. We're, we're tempted to think, man, God, what about like them? Really, them? My friends Gloria and Bobby Gilpin were faithful are faithful servants here of the gospel. They, they came into this place, they served in Merge, they served in Summit Foundation Groups, uh, they served in Equipped Disciples, she served in Women's Bible Study. They gave of their lives here. And then Bobby was hit with a massive stroke. I mean, he's going through DTS so that he could be a better discipler of young men and he's hit with a massive stroke, driven to a wheelchair. Gloria now taking care of him. And this is what she says, watch this, this is their story. My name is Gloria Gilpin. My husband and I have been married for 51 and a half years. My husband had just retired and we had big plans. We celebrated our 40th anniversary, and then suddenly, in a split second, everything changed. He had a massive stroke, and nothing was as it was before. First, it was the shock, the initial anxiety. All of a sudden, I was in charge of everything. When Bobby came home from the hospital, he was in a hospital bed. Our home no longer worked for us anymore nor did our car, everything had to change. It's sell the house of 39 years, find a new place, remodel. I was really overwhelmed. <laughs> I had to remind myself of his faithfulness, to have confidence in his strength. Trust is being content and not knowing what's ahead. Scripture, really nurtured my spirit, especially Psalm 40. It says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a, on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my heart, a hymn of praise to my God. My life is very different from my own expectations. The Lord has given me absolutely everything I need for happiness. We celebrated our 50th anniversary, rejoicing in the years that we almost didn't have. We may not dance the way we used to, but we have a dance of joy. I am not a fool for using tragedy for God's glory. We recorded that, recorded that a little while ago, a couple of weeks ago, Bobby passed away. He went home to be with Jesus, not passed away. He went home to be with Jesus. So I talked to Gloria the day before yesterday, asking permission to share that. And just ask, how, hey, how are you doing? I know it's a dumb question, but 
She said, everything changed when Bobby had a stroke and now everything's changed again. She said, I just lost my biggest job, which was taking care of him. He said, now there's only one placemat at the table. There used to be two there. Now there's only one, but I know that the Lord is going to wrap me in his feathers, Psalm 92. I know that he's good. He's going to put me on a firm foundation and put a new song in my heart, she said. And she said, JP, I don't know what that song is, but I know that it will be one of declaring his goodness and faithfulness because that's what Bobby wanted to give our lives to, to know God and to make him known. And so whatever the song he places in my heart, it will be knowing him and making him known. And if she can say that, so can we. If David says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. It ain't half full because the tomb is not full of Jesus. It's empty because the tomb is empty. Let me pray with you. Father, as we move to worshiping you, would you fill our hearts with hope? Remind us of truth. Stir our affections around things that you've done for us. Help us not to be given to the negativity of the world, the cynicism of our critics, hopelessness, but to be filled with hope and a courage rooted in the future that you're coming back for us and that you have promises for us. In the name of Jesus.